So once again, Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to be reading, starting in verse 20 through 26. It says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest the accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until the last penny, until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Let us go to him in prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this day, for the beautiful day you have blessed us with, where we can come and gather in fellowship, where we can worship your name and learn from your word. And Lord, I just pray now that as, we, as I present the, the word this morning, that you would give me your words, that your spirit would move, and that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the message that you have for us this morning. Move in our hearts this morning, Lord, and help us to glorify you in this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, how many times have you heard the idea that religion is a private thing? Probably quite a few. Or that it should be a private thing. It's common in the wider culture, the idea that it's okay for you to have faith and believe whatever you want to believe, just so long as you keep it to yourself. Certain parts of the culture love this idea of faith being private, making sure faith has minimal impact in public. And we as Christians can easily recognize that sort of error. We know we can't hide our faith. But there are other ways that faith can be private. One of the ways is when we say things like, my faith is just between me and God. When put this way, faith isn't about not letting your faith show in public, in society, but about making faith this absolutely personal thing between us and God. It's mine and it doesn't have anything to do with you or my relationships with you. It's just me and God. When put this way, the, faith, the private faith isn't about not letting your faith show in society. And we see this attitude most often in those who say something like, who pro they profess to be Christians, but they say, you know, I'm a Christian, but I don't want anything to do with the church. That's not for me, I'm, but I'm a Christian, I just don't want anything to do with the church. That's one of the obvious ways we see this, but we see it more subtly through those who come to worship 
the God who has reconciled himself to them through the death of Christ, but who themselves refuse to be reconciled to their fellow brothers and sisters in the faith. That is, those who place a very high priority on coming to church, but a very low priority on having good relationships with the people who make up the church. Do you have a disagreement with somebody, with the pastor? No need to reconcile it. No need to work on that. Just find another church. Just go (laughs) worship somewhere where you don't have to think about it. Are you at odds with somebody in your life? Have you done something to upset them and you know that they're upset? No worries. That doesn't have anything to do with your worship. Just go to church and pray and read your Bible, do your Bible study, and don't bother thinking about that broken relationship. You can get around to fixing it eventually. The important thing is that you show up for worship. At least that's what this perspective says. So there are many ways we can make the mistake of thinking that our faith is a private thing. When we think we shouldn't be Christians in public, when we think it doesn't much matter if I go to church just so long as I believe in Jesus, but most of us here don't fall into those camps. You are here at church after all. But there's still that other way, that other mistake of thinking that our faith is a private thing, the mistake of thinking that the conflict I have with those around me has no impact on my worship, thinking we can allow relational ruptures to form between us and Christ's body in the church, and that this has no impact on our worship or our faith. So how seriously do you take your anger, your resentment, your bitterness with your spouse, your children, your neighbors, even with the people on social media? Some other time we might question how that impacts our ability to evangelize, whether your words make those around you more or less receptive to the gospel. But right now what we want to ask is, how does this impact your ability to worship? And what we're going to see this morning is that it does have an impact on our worship, a huge impact. We're going to see that our relationships with one another matter for worship. That being in fellowship with one another and worshiping our Lord well is about more than just being in the same room when the sermon is preached or when the hymns are sung. So we're going to unpack this passage this morning. It's going to be very simple. There's Basically, just two things we're going to look at. First, the relationship between Christ and the law. And two, how Christ applies this relationship between, to the relationship between Christians and each other as children of God in worship. So starting off, as with any sermon, the first thing we always want to do is look at our context. Here we're towards the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And what has happened in Matthew up to this point? Jesus has been born. He's faced the temptations in the wilderness. He's called his first disciples. And he's begun his ministry doing miracles and proclaiming the message that if you were to look over in 417, his message of repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. 
So Jesus is preaching and doing miracles, and crowds have gathered. And here it seems that Jesus has kind of withdrawn somewhat from the crowds to teach his disciples. Jesus has begun his ministry of proclaiming the kingdom. He's gathered disciples. He's gathered members of that kingdom. And now he's laying out what it looks like to be a member of that kingdom. He's giving his disciples a vision for what it looks like to be one of his followers. And he's also explaining how he relates to what came before. How Christ and his message relates to the Old Testament and the law. These are things his disciples need to know, his followers need to know. They've been raised in the Judaism of that time, a Judaism that is under the thumb of the scribes and the Pharisees. So it's fair to assume that his disciples have picked up lots of bad ideas for what it means to be a follower of God. The Sermon on the Mount can kind of be seen as Jesus telling them what it really means to live in the kingdom. And so if we look at the beginning of 5, he begins with the Beatitudes, saying, this is what my followers should look like. They should be merciful. They should be peacemakers. They should be pure in heart, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. He tells them that they are to be salt and light. And then he shifts to talking about the law. And it might seem that he's giving them a new ethical standard to replace the old law. So he puts the brakes on that line of thought, and so he's saying, no, no, I have not come to abolish the law. That's not why I'm here. So the question that must have been on the mind of Jesus' followers is, okay, so you've said you're not here to take away the law, but that we must actually be more righteous than the Pharisees. How is that possible? For those who have been brought up in the religion of that time, the command would seem crazy. They are professional holy people. How can we manage to be more righteous than them? So Jesus is going to spend the rest of the Sermon on the Mount answering that very question, how to be more righteous than the Pharisees. And what, the, and what we find is that he does this first through a series of examples where he illustrates their understanding of the law versus his own. And the first example he uses is anger. So we want to talk about the relationship between Christ and the law through the examples that he gives. And his first example, as we see in the heading there of verse 21, is to do with anger. And he begins by saying, You have heard it said to those of old. Now it's vitally important that we understand what Christ is referring to here. If we don't get that, we can't get anything else. What he's reacting against here. And there are two main options for how to take this first little bit of the verse. One, to say, okay, Christ is referring to the law of Moses. That Christ is saying, you know, Moses told you this, but now I'm telling you this. That's one option, but it's not a very good one. Not least because Jesus says just a few verses up that he's not come to abolish the law. He's not here to say that Moses got it wrong. And we should certainly hope not because Moses got the law from God. 
So we don't want that option. So the second option is to realize that what Christ is doing here is referring to the traditional sayings of the scribes and the Pharisees, to their interpretation of the law. That's why verse 21 follows from verse 20. They're connected. The verses of the Bible aren't just randomly thrown in. There's a connection, a flow to everything going on. So, and as we look at this, remember that Jesus' disciples are, are, for all, all intents and purposes, new to the faith. And they've spent their whole lives going to the temple to learn about God, to the synagogues. But who's been in charge? The scribes and the Pharisees have been in charge. His disciples would have had the scriptures interpreted through the lens of the Pharisees. And so now Christ is saying here, the scribes and the Pharisees, they have told you this. They've told you that this is what Moses meant, that this is what the law meant. But they've told you wrong, and I'm here to correct them. See, too often we get the impression that the Pharisees were good interpreters of the law, which makes us end up thinking that the Old Testament was about works righteousness, about earning God's favor by keeping the law. But they weren't, and it's not. The Pharisees were bad examples. They were corrupt examples of, the, of Old Testament Judaism. Moses would not have looked on the Pharisees as being good upholders of the law, and here neither does Christ. Now for any Pharisee within earshot, this would seem crazy. Like Jesus is throwing out the scripture to give his own random interpretation. They would have seen Christ the same way we see someone who says, you know, yeah, I know the church in the Bible says this, but I like to interpret it this way over here. That's just my own little interpretation, and I'm going to give it to you. Just last month, I talked with somebody who insisted that the entire Bible was parables. Just these figurative stories with lessons to them. And when you meet such people, you can't help but say, you know, you are reading it wrong. Like, you're reading it wrong. That's not how it's meant to be read. Because we know you can read the Bible wrong. If somebody says they think the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament, or that Jesus was just saying, you know, be nice to each other, and that was his whole message, we can confidently say, you've misread the scriptures. You probably haven't actually read them. <laughs> but if you have read them and you still think that, you're reading them wrong. The scribes and the Pharisees had dedicated their lives to studying Scripture. And then here comes Christ who basically says, you've searched the Scriptures, but your heart was hard, and you've read them wrong. So I say to you. And so whenever we see this, the Pharisees are always angry when they pop up in Scripture. Except they can never actually point out how Jesus is wrong. And that makes it all the worse for them. Notice how they always ask Jesus questions, and then after Jesus answers, what happens? They're always speechless. They can't respond, except they want him dead. Because he's actually right, because he's the authoritative interpreter. Because he is the eternal God without beginning or without end. He is the God, and it's, he is God, and it's his law, and he knows its true meaning. 
and its true intent against the perversions that have clouded it. And so he has the authority to say, You have heard it said, but I say, I, the God of the universe who handed this law down to Moses in the first place, I say, I say it means this, and if you're transformed by my spirit, if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, then you will understand. And ultimately, we all need that. We need new eyes and new ears because the scriptures cannot be read properly without the aid of the Spirit. The Pharisees lacked God's Spirit, and so they could not read God's law properly. Instead, like the person who tries to just read the Bible as parables, they try to read it in a way that makes it easier. So do the Pharisees, reading it as just a list of things to follow outwardly. So Christ says here, You have heard it said, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. I actually prefer the King James reading, which clarifies angry with a brother or sister without cause. Most ESVs will kind of clarify that in the bottom, that that's, some manuscripts have it that way. But whether we take the King James reading or not, we can balance the statement against other parts of the Bible. Such as James telling us to be slow to anger, or Paul telling us to be angry and sin not. Jesus is angry when he cleanses the temple, and both Jesus and Paul call people fools. Paul to the Galatians and Jesus to the Pharisees. They were angry, but never with a petty anger, never with a quick anger, a resentful or a prideful anger. And there's a difference there. So the Pharisees say, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Now, what is wrong with that? That seems like it's just, you know, Moses, quoting Moses. What's wrong is not what they had said, but what they had left unsaid here. The Pharisees were not giving a full summary of the law regarding murder. So far as they're concerned, as long as you're not actually killing anybody, then you're upholding the Sixth Commandment. And so Christ has to correct them, showing how it's more about the heart than about following a list. And this makes sense. It's God's law, and what God wants is not just blind obedience. He loves his people as children, and he wants his people to love him and to love each other. So Deuteronomy, right after giving the Ten Commandments, tells us to love God with all our heart, soul, and strength. So Leviticus, in the midst of its section on the law, tells us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Why does it do this? Because that's what the law is. It's an explanation of what it looks like to love God and love our neighbors. The reason it condemns us is because we fail to live up to that standard. When we fail to love God and love our neighbor as we should, the law points that out and we are condemned. It shows us our failure. So Christ, he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. To fulfill it by living a perfect life, by loving God and loving his neighbor, and loving you and loving me, even to the point of death on our behalf. So what we see here is that Christ didn't come to take away the law, and he isn't here even to make the law harder. He's not raising the standard. 
but showing how the standard was always this high. The standard was, was always this high, but the Pharisees, in their perversion of the law, had failed to see it. So Christ is correcting them, laying out for them the true nature of the law that they had suppressed. So the law still stands. As we saw in Romans 8 this morning, this passage is basically a reflection of Romans 8, if you want to go read Romans 8 after this. They had suppressed the law, but the law still stands. The law is still there serving its purpose, showing us what it looks like to love God and love our neighbor, and condemning us when we fail to meet that standard. Condemning us so that we will be driven to rely more upon Christ. Now that's the backbone of what Christ is working with here, that the law of God wasn't just concerned about not killing people, but about the seeds of sinful anger that lead to murder. And again, this is not new. The Old Testament was all about the heart too. So Proverbs tells us that the the ways of man are clean in his sight. But the Lord weighs the motives. The Psalms tell us that the Lord probes minds and knows the secrets of the heart. And Chronicles tells us that the Lord understands every intent of the thoughts. The Lord understands every intent of the thoughts, and that's why here Jesus can pinpoint the root behind the murder, the intent behind the unrighteous anger. The visible outworkings may be different, but the heart behind both is the same. What God wants is people who love Him and love their neighbor. And sure, if, you're, if you love your neighbor, you're not going to murder them. But Christ goes on to point out that loving your neighbor has a lot more to do with your inward temperament, has to, has to do with your inward temperament towards them. Because of course it does. You can't love somebody without your attitude towards that person changing. So Christ isn't making the law harder than Moses, but he's making it harder than the Pharisees. To the Pharisee, Christ asks, Are you worthy of divine judgment? As worthy of divine judgment as the murderer? Well, if you harbor grudges, if you're resentful, if you're bitter, if you have this sinful anger welling up inside you, then yes, you are as worthy of judgment. And that should be scary to his listeners. Because anyone who searches their own heart has to say, I don't live up to that standard. I have anger. I have resentment and bitterness. And when we have that reaction, the law is doing its job of showing us where where we fall short. We see our inability and we say, I'd like to live that like that, but I don't. I can't. And then the law has done its job, and that's when we're directed to Christ. Or in the Old Testament, to the sacrifice, which points to Christ. When we turn and say, Lord, I am unworthy, but because of your love for us, because of your son who was worthy and paid the price for my failure, and not only that, but was raised from death unto life and sent his spirit so that he might give us new life as well. I trust in him, accept me on his behalf because I cannot live up to this, so I accept Christ. Getting you to that point of making that confession is one of the main purposes of the law. 
So Christ has not come to abolish that law. The law of God is not just an arbitrary standard. It's an outline of God's glorious goodness. We're not told to live like this just because, but we're told to live like this because God is like this. And we will be made more and more like this when we receive Christ and His Spirit comes into our lives. So that's the thrust of Christ's message. Now, how does he unpack and apply this? He begins his application by saying, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there at the altar. First, go and be reconciled. Then, come and offer your gift. And the first ramification here is that we should be driven to mending broken relationships. Christ could have just said, you know, just stop being angry. Don't be angry anymore. And that'll be good enough. But the goal isn't just an attitude change. It's not enough to just stop being angry. Not enough to put away resentment and stop calling people morons. <laughs> that is a start. But Christ says here, you're still neglecting the sixth commandment unless when you see relationships decay around you, that you try to mend them. Because the heart that has been reconciled to God is a heart that longs to be reconciled to others. And so Jesus says, if you are worshiping God and realize somebody has something against you, meaning like a valid claim you've sinned against them, the urgency is such that you should leave the altar and run out and make it right. And now the catch here is, what's more, the, the Sermon on the Mount was probably given in Galilee, yet the temple, the only place the sacrifice can be offered, is in Jerusalem, something like 80 miles away. So here Christ says, if you're at the altar, you've traveled to Jerusalem with your animal and you realize you've sinned against somebody, you are to leave the animal and journey however far back, again, in order to make it right, in order to bring reconciliation before you dare present your offering. So we must be driven to go above and beyond to mend relationships. And this is so important that if we don't, we're not fit for worship. Our offerings and our worship lose their value. We cannot please God. And again, Christ is not offering something new here. Yet again, this is all throughout the Old Testament. The Old Testament everywhere teaches that under certain circumstances, worship is not acceptable to God. And it usually has to do with the heart. As far back as Genesis 4, Cain's offering is rejected. 1 Samuel 15 tells us that to obey is better than a sacrifice. Hosea says that I desire mercy, not a sacrifice. Isaiah 1, Jeremiah 6, Amos 5, Micah 6, Psalm 51. Everywhere we see that the offerings and even the prayers of those who are living in unrepentant sin being rejected by God. Peter tells us that if a man does not respect his wife... His prayers will not be heard. Peter tells us that if we don't repent before taking the Lord's Supper, that we do harm to ourselves. 
The Bible everywhere teaches that under certain circumstances, worship is not acceptable to God. And those circumstances are when our heart is actively at odds with God or with our fellow people. You can be a sinner and your worship will still be acceptable to God, but you can't be an unrepentant sinner. All throughout the Bible, the message is clear. Worship, even prayer, derives its value and its effect from the heart of the worshiper. God will always hear your prayer for repentance. If you pray for repentance, God will hear you each and every time. But if you are unrepentant, living in unrepentant sin, and you're praying for something besides forgiveness, then the Bible tells us God may very well not hear your prayers. If you want your prayers to be heard, you must be living a life of repentance. If you want your worship to sanctify you, if you want to truly worship God and be built up in the body of Christ, you must be repentant. You must be seeking reconciliation with your fellow believers and with all those whom you've sinned against. And this is where we circle back around to talking about faith being private or what might be better called an isolated faith. You can't isolate your faith from your relationships with others. There is a real sense here where you cannot be right with God if you're unwilling to put yourself right with the people in your life. If you're harboring evil thoughts, if you've sinned against somebody and refused to ask forgiveness and make amends, God's word to you is that there is no value in your worship. Your anger is setting up a barrier between not only yourself and that other person, but also between yourself and God. Through your anger, you're setting up that barrier, and only repentance can remove it. Only reconciliation can remove it. Now, does this mean that our acceptance is based on works? That we must, be do, that we must do something to be acceptable to God, to worship God? We must earn our salvation? No, because again, it's about the heart. Our actions are just a reflection of our hearts. The point is that the person who is unwilling to put themselves right with those in their lives, a person who doesn't have a heart for reconciliation, they haven't had their heart changed. Because a heart that loves God is a heart that will seek reconciliation. Our actions are signposts showing us what is in our hearts. So either that heart does not love God, or at the very least it does not real, fully realize the ramifications of loving God. So first, we should seek reconciliation. And another ramification we can pull from this is that we should analyze our faith. This should make us analyze our faith and our lives. Do you have unresolved anger? Do you have broken relationships, especially ones where you know that a large part, a large part of the fault lays with you? Where you weren't as charitable as you could have been? Where you were more hostile than you should have been? Less open to change? Less open to listening? where you just wanted to win the argument rather than heal the relationship. Far, far too often, 
We just want to win arguments and score points for ourselves or our side rather than build relationships. And that is sin. We should analyze our lives in the light of God's law, in light of how we live up to the standard of loving God and loving others. This standard should make us feel unsatisfied because we don't live up to it. If we feel satisfied with our ability to live up to this, then we have not yet realized the sin that is in our hearts. We must listen to the teachings of Christ and examine ourselves, examine our thoughts and our desires and our imaginations. Unless we feel the need to be cleansed and washed, unless we feel hopeless without Christ to lean on, we should be worried of the judgment to come. Those who do not know Christ should feel unsatisfied because they do not meet this standard. But those of us who do know God should also feel unsatisfied because even though we do not have God, or because even though we do have God as our Father, we do not yet act all the time as His children ought. And that could drive us to despair until we realize that even though we've been given a new heart, it's still transforming this body. Now imagine you are a corpse and God, but God has placed this new heart within you and it's pumping this new life throughout your body. Your old dead flesh is certainly fighting back, but that heart is strong. It's stronger than that whole dead body, and it's changing it. It's sanctifying it, and it's powered by the Spirit. That heart is powered by the Spirit, so it's going to win. It may not always feel like it. Sometimes it'll feel like the flesh is winning. You'll feel yourself regularly getting angry, and not with a righteous anger, but with a sinful anger towards your spouse, your family, your coworkers, even the people on TV or social media. The flesh will win some battles, but it's fighting a losing war. We've been given this new heart, and that has given us new life. And even more, we've been given Christ's robes. So that when God looks at us, what he sees is his son. So that if we trust in him, we will have no fear of judgment. Now again, this is not saying that you'll be perfect. Perfection isn't the mark of the Christian at least not yet. But we will have a desire to be perfect. We will, as Christ says in the Beatitudes, hunger and thirst for righteousness. When we wrong somebody, we will have a desire to be reconciled. If you have no inkling of that desire within you, you may, at the very least, want to question your understanding of the gospel and its transforming power. Some people, of course, will, be, will refuse to be reconciled. You will go to make amends and be rejected. But so far as it depends on us, we are to be at peace. And then once we've done all within our power to bring about reconciliation, and the other person still refuses, then the guilt will be on them alone. So you've been given this new heart, and it's this seed of life that is within you. And as we nurture it, it grows, 
and it fills our lives and we become more and more like Christ. And we see that in this life, we see that the good works that pour out of us as we grow in Christ-likeness. This is visible in this life as we grow. And during this life, some grow more than others. Some reach greater levels of sanctification than others. If you were converted 40, 50 years ago, you've had a lot of time to sanctify. If you're new to the faith, not so much. We grow to different levels of sanctification in this life. But then at Christ's return, when we, when we all bask in the light of His presence, then in the power of His light, that seed which has grown into a tree and developed fruits of good works, when it's exposed to that light and it shed off all its chaff, it will shed off all its chaff in that light, and all its old parts will be shed. And it will burst into the full glory as we are made into the likeness of Christ. And so we, are, we will all burst into that glory. That is glorification. We are sanctified to different levels, but in the end, we are all glorified in the power of the light of Christ at his return. So those who trust in Christ reach different levels of sanctification in this life, but we all end in glorification. When the Spirit of God has used that new heart that's within you to fully transform this old body to fully transform us. That is our confident hope that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. That is a hopeful note, but this passage does not end on a hopeful note. If after we analyze our faith, we come away realizing not only that we don't live up to that standard, but that we don't even want to, that there are relationships we don't even want to mend, that we have brothers and sisters in Christ who we are glad we no longer talk to, <laughs> or where we think and say, you know, I just refuse to face the way I hurt that person. If that's us, then what we need is not assurance, but warning. We know that all those who have that new heart will be glorified together at the return of Christ. All those who have that righteous seed planted within them, who receive that new heart, they will be glorified. But if you die with that heart of stone still lodged in your chest... If instead of having that seed of righteousness planted in your heart, you cherish and nurture that seed of resentment and bitterness, that heart of stone, it too will grow. For some it grows large in this life. And we see, we see this when it grows and it bears fruits of violence and murder and abuse. But even if it doesn't grow to that level in this life, if that's the heart you leave this life with, if that's the seed that's planted in your heart when you leave this life, then that seed too will be shown for what it is in the light of Christ's coming. It will burst and be revealed for what it is as the full decaying and cursed tree fit for nothing but being burned in the fires of hell. Christ says that this anger within you is no laughing matter. It is no slight thing where we can say, yes, but I'm not as bad as that person over there. 
I haven't done what they've done. Christ says, no, this is the very seed that will drive you straight into the fires of hell. This is the seriousness that Christ is addressing here. Those who refuse Christ will grow to different statures in this life. Some will simply cherish that seed of anger and resentment. Others will nurture it and allow it to grow and produce fruits of violence and murder. But in the life to come, just as all the children of God will be seen by their true natures, so too will these, the children of wrath, be seen for what they are. As having that old nature that cannot stand the presence of God, in which the presence of God cannot stand. So be reconciled to God. Seek reconciliation. He accepts all those who come to him no matter their sins. And that is wonderful news. Ask the Lord to quell the anger and the resentment in your heart. Ask him to build you up, to reveal to you the true depravity in your hearts. Ask him to justify and sanctify you. Cry for mercy not only that you may pass the judgment, but so that you may be made new. When you repent, he will accept you just as you are, but he will not leave you as you are. But he will put that new heart within you, which will begin the process of transforming and purifying that old flesh. So flee into the arms of Christ. Plead for his mercy, because again, as we can see here, worshiping our Lord well and being fellowship, being in fellowship with one another is about more than just being in the same room when the sermon is read or the hymns are sung. That taking communion is about more than just drinking some grape juice and some bread. It's about the change of heart that we have towards one another when we are accepted into his kingdom. It's about being really knit together in fellowship and communion with one another. So examine your hearts. Seek reconciliation and repentance with your fellow people. So that then, once you have sought reconciliation and repentance, you can confidently enter into the worship of our Lord. You can confidently enter into his worship. You can worship him well. You can have true fellowship with your fellow people, with your fellow Christians. You can remove that barrier that you've set up. You can have true communion with Christ and with his body, the church. So that is our prayer for you today, that you would seek reconciliation, that you would seek that better worship. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you once again for this day, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Son who you sent because even though we may try, we cannot live up to this standard. We have anger in our hearts, Lord. We have resentment. And Lord, we pray that you would move in our hearts, that you would drive us to be people who seek reconciliation, that we may worship you well. We want to worship you well, Lord. So, if we have not yet accepted you, then we pray that you would drive us to that acceptance, to that reconciliation. And even those of us who 
have your new heart within us, Lord. We pray that you would use the spirit, that you would use that new heart to purify us all the more, to sanctify us all the more, to drive that anger from our lives. Lord, we want that anger driven from our lives that we may worship you well, that we may be knit together in fellowship with the people here. So sanctify us, Lord, and purify us. Help us to have hearts that seek reconciliation, that we may glorify you in all we do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.